as we're getting going, uh, the first thing that our author does here uh, when we pick up in verse 18 is he begins to sort of summarize what he's been dealing with throughout this book. Now, you know, he's been, he's been writing to Jewish Christians, uh, to first century Jewish people who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of these recipients, what they were doing was they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. They were being tempted by, like, you know, the, the massive Jewish culture and, and the temple worship and all this. They were being tempted to abandon Christ and to go back to the offering of sacrifices, the going back to the, the ceremonial laws, going back to the Old Testament priesthood, and going back to temple worship. And the author of Hebrews, his whole point in this epistle is to say, no, don't do that. You don't need the old forms now that Christ has come. And so the first part of the text here is he's dealing with the Mosaic Covenant. Right? The author of Hebrews is dealing with the Mosaic Covenant. He's telling his people once more, sort of a big summary statement. Why is it that you don't want to go back to the Old Testament forms? Okay, that's his first point. Second point is he wants to tell us about what we do have as Christians. Why what we have is more of full than what the Old Testament saints had. And so he tells us about what he calls the heavenly Jerusalem. And then finally, the last part is he deals with exhortation. Because what he says is, therefore, now that we know this, now that we know that what we have is the fulfillment, what should be our response as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay? So that's where we're going. That's what the text comes out to here. So let me read for us Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 18. And pay attention here. Look for these three sections. Mosaic economy, heavenly Jerusalem, exhortation. There's your three points. Verse 18 of chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
So there you can see, you can see the, those three major ideas that we were talking about coming out here in the text. The first thing our author wants to get across to us is he wants to tell us about the Old Testament economy. He wants to tell us about, if you will, the Mosaic Covenant. What was going on there? And, and remember, as I said a moment ago, our author is writing to Jewish Christians who want to turn back to Judaism. And he's saying, no, don't do that. Why would you do that? And he addresses them head on in verse 18. And he addresses them by saying, you have not come to what may be touched, to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And you know what he's talking about there is he's talking about when the Israelites came out of the Exodus. God, out of his grace, leads them out of bondage in Egypt and he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there he's got all of his people there. And there, Moses erects a covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. And what happens is on Mount Sinai, Israel doesn't show up and it's just a nice, happy, sunny day with the birds chirping because they've just been rescued I mean, that's probably how they should have been thinking about it because they were rescued out of God's grace. But what happens on the top of Mount Sinai? It's not birds chirping. and They are overwhelmed with a holy God. Because what happens on the mountain? Smoke fills the top of the mountain. Mysterious smoke of the divine presence. And they hear coming from the top of the mountain lightning blasts. And thunder rolls. And the rumblings of a divine voice coming out of that cloud saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And boom, then they get the law. This is the holiness of God put on display. And what was their response According to the author of Hebrews, what was their response to that? He says the hearers begged that no further message would be spoken to them. Why? Because they were hearing the holiness of God. They were confronted with a holy, righteous judge. The law put on display for them. And they saw it. They begged that no further message would be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given, we're told, because it was incomplete. It was never meant to last. Israel was not supposed to be just there. They were always supposed to be looking forward to the coming of Christ, where true salvation would be given. But they couldn't endure that order. And so he says here, verse 21, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I tremble with fear. Even Moses, the mediator of that old covenant, trembled with fear at the holiness, that holy presence of God. Now why is that? Why does the author of Hebrews go out of his way here to explain how terrifying this old order was? Because it's not as if it was bad, right? It was God who instituted it. God instituted the nation of Israel. God instituted the ceremonial laws. God instituted the sacrifices. God instituted the priesthood. God instituted the temple. He instituted the whole order. So why is it characterized here as a terrifying order? 
Because it's not as if that the Old Testament Israelites didn't have salvation. Or as if they were looking to, to uh, fulfilling the Ten Commandments themselves out of their own ability as if that was what was going to save them. Or as if they would be saved by doing the works of the law. That's not what Israel was supposed to think. That's not how they were saved. They were saved by faith in the Messiah. And because of their faith in the Messiah, they had full forgiveness of sins just as we do. So it's not as if they were saved by works and that's why they were terrified. Rather, what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across here is really key. As he says right here in verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. And the reason for that is because it was always meant to be temporary. It was always meant to last only for a particular period of redemptive history. The nation of Israel as a theocracy with the sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple was instituted by God and it had a purpose. The author of Hebrews does not say that it was a bad order. He says here it is incomplete. It cannot do what God promised to Abraham that God would do. God didn't promise to Abraham, hey Abraham, I will save your seed if they do all the things that I say in the Mosaic Covenant. No, that's not how they would be saved. They would be saved by faith in the Messiah. The Messiah who was promised when God made the covenant with Abraham. And so that old order of the Old Testament times, the the Israelite theocracy, all that business, that was good. It had its function. It had its place. But only for a limited duration of time. That's the fundamental error of some of these people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. He's saying to them... Don't go back. Why would you want to go back to that? That has no function anymore. And remember, he's writing to Jews, Jewish Christians. And he says, no, don't look for that. You do not want the temple. You do not want the sacrifices. You don't want the ceremonial laws. You don't want the priesthood. That had a temporary function. And in verse 22 here, he redirects, he reorients his readers. No, you don't want that. Here's what you do want. In fact... Not only here's what you do want, but here is what you have received as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled all these things. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the what? The heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. Notice the language that he's using here. He's talking about a heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about all of the things that the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about. Notice all the words here. The city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, angels feasting, the assembly of the firstborn, God, the judge of all, ruling over this spiritual city. This is what the Old Testament prophets were talking about. We read in the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 12, whatever other prophets, we know that they were prophesying all the time about a future time when God's people Israel would come, they would come to Jerusalem, there would be a temple, there would be sacrifices, there would be a priesthood, there would be all of these things happening in this wonderful city, this new Jerusalem the prophets are always talking about. And according to the New Testament authors, 
those prophecies about Israel coming to Jerusalem are not talking about Israel coming to a physical Jerusalem. As if we should be expecting some future time when God's going to restore the Old Testament order of priesthood and temple worship and all these things in the literal Jerusalem in the Middle East. According to the New Testament authors, the author of Hebrews, Paul, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, the prophecies about Israel coming and coming to God's city of Jerusalem are fulfilled with the coming of Christ in God ushering in his people to what? A heavenly Jerusalem. Into a spiritual Jerusalem. Into a Jerusalem that these readers themselves have. He doesn't say, you will come to Mount Zion. You notice that? Verse 22. It's the perfect tense. Past tense. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to is salvation. The kingdom that the Old Testament prophets prophesied that would be established in Jerusalem is not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. This is the kingdom that Jesus came and was talking about all the time in the Gospels. He talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. He says that when he arrives, the kingdom of God has come. This is salvation. And there's two levels to it. On the one hand, we experience this new Jerusalem right now as believers in Christ in salvation. We call this the already. We already experience this new Jerusalem in a spiritual way. But you know, this new Jerusalem is still yet to come in another sense, in the not yet sense. You've heard this before, right? The already and the not yet. We experience it already, but we still await the full consummation of it because the full fulfillment of the new Jerusalem promised in the Old Testament prophets, promised in the book of Revelation, promised in 2 Thessalonians, promised in, third, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, all of these places, that new Jerusalem in the not yet aspect is coming in the new heavens and the new earth. It is heaven. It is the golden city coming down out of heaven that John describes in his apocalypse. This assembly of the firstborn, this city of the living God, this new Jerusalem is full and final salvation for all of God's people for all of time, according to the New Testament apostles. And you've heard me say this before. We need to interpret the Old Testament like the apostles do. We need to interpret the Old Testament according to what they say it means. So we have the assembly, the the heavenly Jerusalem that is ours. It is our possession by the work of Christ. And this is precisely the whole point of the author of Hebrews throughout this whole book, isn't it? If you've been here throughout this whole time, we have seen the author of Hebrews walks us through how Christ is superior to everything in the old order, right? Christ is superior to the priesthood. Why? Because he is the high priest. He is our eternal high priest. After Christ, we need no more priests. There will never, ever be a priest ordained by God ever after the person of Christ. That's why we don't have here at Pearl Presbyterian Church a priest. It is not priest McLeod. There's no priest except Christ. Never, ever again, ever will there ever be a priest except Christ. 
Christ comes and he's the perfect sacrifice. We saw this in Hebrews 9 and 10. He is the full final sacrifice. As soon as he is offered, boom, we don't need any more Old Testament sacrifices. Because he has accomplished sin once for all. The blood of bulls and goats, we're told, can never take away sin. Christ fulfills it. When we're talking about the ceremonial laws, we saw that fulfilled as well. Christ fulfills all of those things. We don't need those anymore. We saw in Hebrews chapter 9, Christ fulfills the temple. The temple was symbolic of all of the work that Christ would do. And we don't have time to review all those things. But if you read chapter 9, the author of Hebrews walks us through and he says, Look, here's how Christ fulfills the temple. We don't need a temple. We never need, God's people never need another temple. Because Christ has fulfilled it. And the earthly temple corresponds to the heavenly temple. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. To think that we need to watch and to wait for the old order to come back, that God's going to reestablish these things, according to the author of Hebrews, is essentially to throw dirt in the face of Christ. To say, your work really didn't finish it. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, to telestai. He said, it is finished. We're not going back to the old order. It had its place. It had its function. In this part of history, no more. Christ finished it. You see the superiority of the person of Christ put on full display in this book. We have the heavenly Jerusalem already, and we await heaven in the not yet. The full, final new Jerusalem. So that's what the author of Hebrews wants to get across to us here in terms of the doctrine in terms of the theology, in terms of the teaching. And now he moves on to his third part here, his exhortation. Now here's how we ought to respond to this, this teaching. What on earth are we supposed to think about all these things? Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. There the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like the Israelites who didn't listen. God thundered the law from Mount Sinai and they did not listen. They did not follow God. They died in the wilderness, that whole generation. They didn't listen. Don't be like that, he says. Remember, he's speaking to those original readers that are, are thinking about leaving. He says, don't refuse him. Don't refuse God. This is his work. This is his Christ. Don't refuse him. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Translation, do not reject what God has done. Do not reject Christ. Don't turn away from him to go back to the old order. Because just as God judged the Israelites, so God will judge you with an eternal judgment if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so you can see there, it's a solemn warning. But I want to focus more carefully here on verses 28 and 29. This is where we really see the exhortation come in that applies very much to us right now. Verse 28, therefore, there's two things he's going to give us here. Two exhortations of how we respond to this doctrine. Therefore, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know what the Israelites received? They received a kingdom that could be shaken. That land of Canaan, that could be shaken. In fact, it was shaken, and they lost it. They lost it. Because they were disobedient people. Plain and simple. They did not listen to God. The author of Hebrews contrasts this, and he says, you know what? They received a kingdom that was shaken. You receive a kingdom through the Lord Jesus Christ that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because you're so great. Because you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and have stronger faith and keep the faith and keep pressing on. No. It is not an unshakable kingdom because of your power. It's an unshakable kingdom because Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. You remember us talking about that. Our kingdom that we have is unshakable because it is not only the fact that we believe in Christ as he is the object of our faith, but Jesus himself is the one who plants faith in us. He's the founder, the originator, the birth parent of our faith, as we talked about. And he is the perfecter. He is the one who brings our faith to completion. He's the one who preserves us in the faith unto the end so that none of his sheep are ever lost, ever. All of his sheep make it to the end. Not because his sheep are strong, but because he is strong. He is the founder, perfecter of our faith. This is why the kingdom that he gives us, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, this new Jerusalem, this message of salvation, that is why it is unshakable. It's because Jesus is the foundation. And he does not fail. He never fails. And so our response to this is what? To be grateful. To be grateful. To be thankful. To give thanks. To give thanks to God for this. We live, folks, if you just think about this for a second, we live right now in this period of redemptive history as Christians. We live in an era where we have access to the most amount of God's revelation of any period in the history of the church, including the Old Testament church. You realize that? Yes, the Old Testament church by 400 B.C. had the entire Old Testament. Yes, the New Testament church, by the time we reached the end of the first century, had the whole New Testament. But it was in Hebrew and Greek. The church for a while had the Bible in Latin, so a few more people could read it. But you got all the way up today, after the Reformation, we have the Word of God translated for us in English right here. We can read the entire message of redemptive history right here. All of God's revelation in a language that we can easily understand. How grateful ought we to be for that? How grateful ought we to be for that? We have, re- we have received an unshakable kingdom, and we can read about it with ease. Praise God for that. Let us be thankful. Let us be grateful. But there's another piece here, another exhortation that we have from God on the basis of this teaching. Second one is in the second half of verse 28. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. 
Now notice a couple of things about this particular exhortation here. Firstly, notice he uses this term acceptable worship. Now some translations will say acceptable service, and that's fine. Worship is more of a particular kind of service, and usually it's translated as worship. So I think it, worship is the better, better one to go with here, but whichever, it's all right. The point is, we are called here to worship God in response to this teaching that the author of Hebrews has brought to our attention. And notice what he says here. He doesn't say just offer worship. Notice that qualifier right before it, acceptable worship. And you can see this corresponds, this uh, gives us basically the obvious deduction here that if there's this category of acceptable worship, what must there also be then? Unacceptable worship. See, in our own day and age, many Christians think that you know, the only kind of worship that's really helpful is the worship that makes me feel good. Right? Everybody's picking churches and going to places and deciding, well, you know, I like the worship here. So, you know, and, and there's some truth to that because God wants us to care about the worship for sure. But the idea is, well, God, you know, if I'm happy with the worship, then God must be happy. Because you know, all God cares about is if I enjoy the worship. As long as I'm happy, he must be happy. That's not biblical. No, there's, there is a category of unacceptable worship. And unacceptable worship is worship that God has not commanded. You can see examples of this in Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, remember those guys, the sons of Aaron? They were priests. They were Levites. They came to the temple. They had very specific instructions. You will worship God like this. And what they do, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, now the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, came and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They did not worship the way they were commanded to. And what did God do? He became a consuming fire. And he burned them up. Notice verse 29. The author of Hebrews is alluding to that event here. That's how we know that that word should be understood as worship. He's alluding to Leviticus 10. When God struck Nadab and Abihu with burning fire and said, you will worship me the way that I have commanded. You will not be innovators in my worship. Worship, acceptable worship to God is worship that he has commanded us. And that's why we worship the way that we worship. God commands that we sing. So we sing, right? God commands that we hear the preaching of the word, so we hear the preaching of the word. God commands that we read the scriptures, so we read the scriptures. God commands that we pray. God commands that we take oaths for ordination vows. God commands that we take, take oaths for church membership vows, so we do that. God commands that we use creeds, so we do that. We're not making things up. We're not trying to be innovators. We are doing what the scripture says, because that is acceptable worship to God. But notice here that in this command, in this exhortation of us, that in response to this teaching, we should offer acceptable worship. Notice what is being implied. Notice the principle. And that is that doctrine leads to worship. Doctrine leads to worship. What did the author of Hebrews just get done doing? He said, you guys have salvation. You guys have everything that the Old Testament was looking forward to. 
do not go back to the Old Testament forms. Don't do that. Ever. Christ fulfilled them all. Do not throw dirt in his face by looking forward to that. You need Christ. Now what's your response to this great doctrine, this great teaching? The response, let us worship God. Let us worship God. Doctrine leads to worship. If you don't have doctrine, you have no reason to worship. If you don't understand the teaching of Scripture, there is no purpose to your worship. Notice that in the Psalms, for example, the psalmist never commands us to worship God without giving us a reason. Listen to Psalm 98, just these opening words. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. There's the command to sing. We got that command. Worship God. But notice what happens after that. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For, there's a reason. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. There's your reason. That's why you worship. The Psalms never tell us to just generically say, praise God, praise God, praise God. No, always gives us a reason. Why? Because doctrine leads to worship. If you have no joy in worship, it may be because you haven't understood doctrine. If church is a drudge, if it's something that's hard, if it's something that you dread, we may need to study the gospel a little more. We may need to study the Bible a little more. Doctrine always leads to worship when it's properly understood. And so, folks, listen to that message here as we wrap it up. What's the message here? Jesus has brought you an unshakable kingdom. He has brought you salvation. He has ushered you into the new Jerusalem right now. The kingdom of God is here. It is here. You have it. And you haven't experienced the full consummation of it yet. We're still waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. But we have experienced the already. You have this. What is our response? Let us worship our God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we rejoice this morning in your word. Oh God, this book of Hebrews teaches us so much. It teaches us so much about what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Oh God, Christ has accomplished everything that we need. He has finished the work. And oh God, we pray that you would work that truth, that doctrine, deep within us. So that as we enter into holy worship now, that we would walk in with reverence and with awe. And that we would offer acceptable worship to you. Lord, fill our hearts with the desire to praise you. Because you have announced this gospel to the nations. Your hand, your mighty outstretched hand has conquered sin. Lord, work this message into our hearts, we pray. 
Help us to sing and to praise you genuinely this morning. To confess our faith together. To pray together. To hear your word with open ears and open hearts that we might be changed by it. Oh God, we pray that you would do this this morning. And we know that you will because you promised to do it. And so we pray all these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.